You are listening to the Krika Lecture Series podcast, produced by the Center for Russia, East Europe, and Central Asia at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. This and other Krika podcasts are available on SoundCloud and iTunes. For more information about Krika's lecture series and public events, visit our website at krika.wisc.edu. Good afternoon, everybody. Uh, it's nice to see so many people here, especially on such a warm day in Madison. It feels like we haven't had one of those for a while, so it's good to see a full room even on a warm day. Um, it's my pleasure to introduce uh, today's speaker, David Ost. David is Professor of Political Science at Hobart and William Smith Colleges, where he has taught since 1986. He received his PhD from the Department of Political Science at none other than the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He is the author of several critical books in the field. The first, entitled Solidarity and the Politics of Anti-Politics, Reform and Opposition in Poland since 1968, came out in 1990, just as the communist system was collapsing and as Poland was embarking along the tricky path of what became known as post-communism. Poles and East Europeans in general asked what comes next, and their engagement with that question was the subject of his second major monograph, The Defeat of Solidarity, Anger and Politics in Post-Communist Europe, which appeared in 2005 and won the 2006 Ed A. Hewitt Prize at what was then the American Association for the Advancement of Slavic Studies. In the book, David asked the question of how ordinary people experience the so-called transition to capitalism in Eastern Europe following the collapse of communism. While the book makes more general arguments about the region, he shows us how Poland is a particularly important case for studying the anger that emerged among workers, since it was in Poland that workers seemed to have triumphed through the famous Solidarity Trade Union. As capitalism brought inequalities of various kinds, workers felt, quite rightly, that they had been sidelined. And when they rejected their liberal leaders, right-wing nationalists came to take control. Over the past few years, there has been much political change in Poland, as across the region, in Hungary, as we saw even very recently in the elections, um, in Britain, in the United States too. We are, as David told the students in my history of Poland class this morning, living in interesting times, whether we like it or not. (laughs) David has been at the forefront of writing about these interesting times, not only in academic journals, but also in the popular um, press and in publications for a wider readership, in English, in publications like The Nation, in Polish, in Newsweek Polska and Gazeta Wyborcza. Rather than talking about the many distinctions that David's achieved over his career so far, um, the publications and so on, I think it would just make sense for me to hand over to him now um, so that we can listen to the work that he's been doing on this most relevant of topics, not only for Poles, Hungarians, but for all of us, I think. The title of his talk today says it all, Why Poland Matters, Sources of Radical Right Power in Eastern Europe and the World. Please join me in welcoming David Ost back to Madison. Thank you so much. It's a real, a real pleasure to be here. Since the uh, <coughs> millions of years since I left, I think I uh, came back once for a talk a long time ago, and um, uh, wasn't as big an audience. And uh, anyway, it's a real pleasure. It's wonderful to be back. Um, I'd like to start with something that I wish I could say was a joke, but is anything but. But it's the kind of thing that almost sounds like it is. So. Here's, um, so in the last couple of years, I've been saying to people that I say, I know, 
I know people are thinking this. I know people want to say this in Poland and maybe in America, but, but no one is just openly saying it. You know, and there's this sentence, there's this line, like, like, you know, they must be thinking it. It's so obvious. Why doesn't anyone say it? So I mentioned this to a Polish journalist friend of mine, and I told him what that was. And he says, oh my God, someone said it, just like you hoped for, or you thought was there. And he said, I, this was a left-wing journalist in uh, Poland, and um, this is okay. And, um, uh, and so uh, he said, yeah, I was on TV uh, not long ago, and uh, there was this right-wing government supporter there, and at this point, among other things, we were discussing some old Polish uh, uh, Italian film, the young Mussolini, and they were talking about that. And the line that he said, his interlocutor said, which I always uh, anticipated someone wanted to say, was this. He says, yeah, the problem is that Hitler gave fascism a bad name. Hitler gave fascism a bad name. So, um, Right, you know, that's what I wish I could say was a joke, but is anything but. Now, let me come back, I'll come back to this certainly. I have, I'm not a PowerPoint guy, and I have one slide I want to show. It's not even on PowerPoint, it's a regular Word document. But what's going on? What are the characteristics? Let's see if we get this to work. I pressed, oh, did I? It always works before the talk. Of course. Um, just, yeah, just hit that and it should come back up. Okay. Uh, call it up on your computer first. Oh, my, no, my, here it is. There it is. Okay, so uh, I'm going to not spend a lot of time on talking about some of the facts and characteristics and aspects of what is going on in Poland. I could describe all of these in much greater detail. I have a kind of... Uh, desire to describe them in more, some more excruciating detail to see how uh, 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 extreme they are. When you just put them on a list, it might seem like, oh, you know, they're just words, and if I don't spend the time and really, you know, talk about, talk about those specifics, I don't know, you know, the cultural resurrection of authoritarian, I should have said, you know, open fascist traditions, because we see that very prominently in Poland and in Hungary. I mean, all of the prominent fascists of the past are, you know, presented as national, national heroes. Um, and uh, uh, but anyway, like I say, for the purpose of this talk, I, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. But let's talk about some of the things that have been going on. So, eviscerating the constitutional court and purging the uh, judiciary, plainly violating the Constitution. That's what they started doing. Poland followed from Hungary and did this right as soon as uh, uh, the peace government, I'll say peace, that's the law and justice, P-I-S, uh, uh, peace government came to power, get rid of the constitutional court to make sure that there's not going to be a check on what we do. Now the Constitution violates it in very clear terms. How can they do it? Well, they did it. The constitutional court voted originally and said, you can't do this, this violates the Constitution. And they said, you see, these guys represent the past, they don't know that election's been done, we changed this law, their decision that it violates the Constitution, we don't acknowledge. On what grounds, people said? On the grounds that it violates the will of the nation. Like the will of the nation, we, it's not in the Constitution, no matter, we have power, that's what we do. So we move on. 
Um, complete politicization of the civil service, so they've changed civil service laws. Now you, uh, you used to not, used to have to have some expertise and not be a member of political party. Now you don't have to have any expertise and you can be a member of political party and you're easily uh, replaceable. Turning public media into government mouthpiece, so uh, uh, taking over the uh, uh, official media and transforming them very radically. From one day to the next, I remember when they uh, took this takeover, then far from having, th this was in 2015 or early 16, still at the height of the immigration crisis, there was still a lot of discussion about this on the TV before. The day after the takeover, I happened to be watching it, and they had a different kind of discussion, and I learned from there, you know, on the news that anybody who does not say that all immigrants are terrorists is just, you know, a dupe of political correctness. And, you know, uh, so that's the line. Uh, pressure against private media. This is something that all of these governments, you know, are, are, are doing. In Turkey, they've done it. In Russia, certainly. Uh, in Hungary. And uh, they not yet succeeded in Poland. But state pressure against the private media just to try to undermine it, hopefully to try to have them sell out to government supporters and to uh, uh, eliminate it that way. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, less opportunity uh, to get on the public airway, but they're still somewhat present. Restricting opposition prerogatives in parliament, so all these committees that used to have to have uh, representatives of different sides, now they no longer have to. Uh, they used to have to have bills that are, that are proposed and then get widespread social discussion. Then they use this clause in it that says if an individual parliamentarian brings it in, then we can bring it to a vote right away. So what tended to happen on some of the major bills about the Constitution or about the uh, uh, public media was uh, 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 literally handing out the um, language of the bill in uh, uh, the morning and at 1 a.m., 2 a.m., just uh, 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 you know, announcing that it's passed. The opposition was allowed to ask questions, and I heard that. I have this question. I have this question. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. And then the question will finish. Thank you for your questions. Now let's proceed to a vote. Um, so anyway, okay. official state promotion of intolerance, very close to official promotion of racism and bigotry. Well, as I mentioned, uh, the media does this. And of course, you know, Kaczynski, one of the ways coming into office was his uh, remark about uh, immigrants being dangerous uh, diseases and germs that are going to affect and, uh, uh, you know, and, and just denigration, particularly of uh, uh, um, immigrants of uh, Islamic. Administrative assertion of traditional gender norms, campaigns against feminism, refusal to accept EU covenants against domestic violence. So part of this campaign is to undermine uh, any, any uh, teaching of uh, uh, these ideas. They use a phrase there, you know, gender ideology. We're against gender ideology. Uh, people try to explain gender is a term. It doesn't mean this. You know, it's not ideology. They say, thank you, we're against gender ideology. And now that's just, you know, uh, anything that talks about that there could be discussion and debates about roles um, of things like this. Um, and uh, they're still in universities are teaching uh, some of these topics, but some of their groups like past lists around who's actually teaching that, we're gonna try to cut money for that. And people who works on, work on topics like that are not getting grants. There's one outlet where they can still get a grant, but uh, the authorities promise to uh, clamp down on that when they can. Um, cultural resurrection, well, I mentioned that earlier. 
state promotion, steep subsidies for Catholic Church, so direct transfers from the budget to the most extremist elements. This was even an element that uh, John Paul II was critical of, uh, and um, uh, one that's openly fundamentalist and very prominently anti-Semitic for many years, until, of course, right now. Now they talk about Walpole's having saved all Jews in the past because of the Holocaust speech law, which I don't think we'll get into, but maybe, you know, discussing in questions, um, and surveillance without check. And we really don't know what that entails because they passed a bill allowing the government to do uh, anything and their administration and their secret services, but there really is no check and there's no, uh, even uh, all those in parliament are not obligated to know. So there's actually no way of knowing what actually they're doing in that. Now, at the same time, They do these things, particularly in Poland, less in Hungary, namely social, economic, several economic policies, particularly beneficial to workers and non-elites. Their signature program was generous uh, uh, family benefits for, for parents. So uh, with two children or more, you get a pretty substantial in Poland sum of about $140 per month for each second child and above. For very poor families, you get it for your first child as well. Uh, I know people with a few kids who had made, um, just put it this way, with three kids, people who are working class people working, uh, uh, might get from this about 40, 45% increase in their salary. Uh, per month for two kids, so it was substantial. You know, it was a real, it was a real true, real true benefit. It's cut poverty. Uh, it's also cut some employment, which has some good aspects because it also means that some single mothers, uh, in particular, who this helps more than others, um, uh, have been able to reject very terrible uh, employment conditions because of this. It's also paid for by an increased tax on foreign banks and corporations. Um, they've cracked down on what in Poland they've long called junk contracts, uh, part-time, you know, give no security whatsoever, and a state push for wage increases. And on this last point, it's interesting because they had a tripartite commission where the uh, trade unions and the uh, business associations were discussing like new wage policy and new minimum wage policy, and previous liberal governments were not kind of listening to them. And uh, what happened here, it's interesting, and it shows how they try to do it. So finally, after many months, they worked out an increase in the minimum wage, which is indexed to many other wages, so it's important. They came through with this, and the government said, thank you very much, but you know, that's a good proposal, but we think we're going to raise it even higher, right? So we're going to give even higher than you negotiators minimum wage. Not much, but a little bit. But the point also is showing that, you know, we're the ones who decide this. We're the beneficiaries. It's not trade unions. It's not organizations. You know, it comes back to the whole, the whole policy of the, of the state. Um, I think I can shut this off and maybe turn it back on because other things. So, so these are the basis of things that are happening. Now, how should we call it? What is it? And there's a lot of discussion course, on how to characterize it. Many call it populist. Now, I don't think, it, I don't think it's an appropriate term. One of the key definitions of populism calls it a thin-centered ideology. It means it's not much. It's just the people against the corrupt elites. Um, 
and that there's not much ideology at stake. But if you look at the programs and the long-term processes that led to emergence of this kind of radical program, you see that there is a, a clear ideology based on the idea of a strong state run by a party insisting it and only it represents the nation. Um, is it the people against the elite? Sure, they've used some of those terms, but very much in power. They're, pr they're proud to be elitist. We represent the best of the people. And um, elitists, provided elites uh, have the nation's interest at heart. So, you know, populist, I think, is too little. Another term often used, con uh, competitive authoritarianism. And I think this, this uh, characteristic, this, this idea put forth in an article and in a book by uh, uh, Steve Levitsky, Lucan Wei, um, I think misses the ideological and the counter-revolutionary aspects of this project. Conservative, uh, sorry, competitive authoritarianism describes many of the processes that are at work here, uh, acknowledges that elections still take place, parties are, are still exist, uh, but misses that it's a radical and a revolutionary project, and uh, you know whether elections must take place uh, is not so clear from this ideology. At one point, uh, 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 Kaczynski said in the past, he says, you know, well, if it's, you know, if, if there's a danger to losing power, we could do something about that. Whether we do it or not depends on a number of other factors. You know, so, so it, again, um, it, this competitive authoritarianism, I think, misses, again, this, this um, uh, uh, the radicalness of it and its counter-revolutionary aspects, right? It doesn't just want to hold power and maintain power for an elite. This is a transformative model in many ways, Right, trying to create new elites, uh, uh, domestic elites. So I don't think that works. The other phrase normally used, you know, illiberal democracy. To my idea, to my mind, this underplays also the significance. And again, it detracts, I think, from the radical aspects of this, the, the transformative, ideological aspects of this. And I think it's better actually to look at this uh, in terms of a different. Um, tradition as being very much part of the classic fascist tradition as a kind of left fascism, I would say, with its emphasis on social and economic aspects, which again, more so in Poland than in Hungary. In Hungary, there, some of the people's desires to do a more uh, um, redistributive agenda is checked by um, the underclass being largely Roma, right? And so uh, in Hungary, to have a pro-poor policy is going to benefit the targets of the uh, Hungarians' nation's uh, uh, animosity, as it were. So they've never had as much of a, uh, you know, their policy has been more targeted to the lower middle class and less kind of economically uh, uh, beneficial to the poor. Uh, in Poland, uh, they don't have that minority. I'll come back to this factor later. Um, and uh, uh, so it's, it's um, you know, they can pursue that type of left fascist agenda. Now, there was fascism, we need to remember, before genocide, right? We need, I think, we ought to stop correlating fascism entirely with mass murder. Um, and when you look at it closely and you, and you read documents from the past, and in the last couple of years, besides following this, it has led me to return to a deeper study of classic 
fascism, you see that this project really has a lot in common with a concept first put forward not by the Nazis, but of course taken by the Nazis as their slogan, namely National Socialism. So when this idea was bandied around starting some of it in the late 1800s, early 1900s, right, it was clear that it's a kind of socialism. They understood socialism to be redistribution. They understood it to be empowering the uh, uh, working poor who were part of, uh, uh, part of our nation, right? That's how they understood socialism to be, but not a class base. We wanted it to be national, right? So it's a national project, a nationalist project. Uh, all right, a defense of the community as the nation with some real effort to do so. So this idea, this nation, right, for peace, like for Hungary, the concept of the nation is absolutely central. And here, Americans often get a little, if not a lot, misled, right, because you say the nation. Well, you know, that concept is tended to, we use it here, the nation, tends to mean everybody, uh, policies defending the nation. It's unclear who exactly counts by this, but that term is a pretty inclusive one in American discourse and different people, right and left, can uh, 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 deploy it. Um, but it's very different in a, a classic European tradition, certainly a European um, uh, uh, fascist tradition, where it refers specifically to a certain group. It's a mystical notion. No one can exactly define it. Uh, it's a group that is like us. It's, as Anderson called, right, an imagined community. It's a community of people just like us. And defending the nation does not mean defending all the inhabitants of a certain territory. No, it means defending the people who are part of this nation. And it can be defined linguistically, often ideologically, uh, religiously. Uh, and so, um, you know, the, yeah, talking about we insist on policy in the interest of the nation. Again, the true nation represents certain policies, right? That's why when they violated the constitutional court, right, and they said, well, on what grounds can you do it? Well, because it's the will of the nation, right? And, and as one of them put it, maybe I'll forget the exact phrasing, you know, the, the will of the nation is higher than the rule of law. It was a more elegant phrase than I just put it, but that was the clear point that got a standing ovation, you know, the will of the nation. Uh, so again, the nation, um, uh, uh, and peace has been involved in a project of creating a notion of nation which does not, which does not include its political opponents. Um, so for example, you know, those in the opposition uh, now, the opposition press, uh, what the right tends to do is they don't call them the Polish opposition press. They use this nice phrase, uh, the Polish language opposition press, Polish language press. In other words, they understand, they acknowledge that, yes, we can read it. It's proper Polish. But, you know, they use, pro they use Polish language, but it's not Polish because they take positions that place them outside of the nation. Right? So it's a Polish language press, but it's not a Polish press. So again, this, you know, this, this fascism we know and this tendency is back on the rise, obviously. You know, Donald Trump inhabits and has inhabited many of its aspects. Uh, Tom Edsel in the Times wrote a piece a while ago talking explicitly how you know, Trump was so unusual because this is a kind of policy that follows traditionally from the you know, European fascism, which has a, 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 a long tradition, of course, in Europe, although like all fascisms, it's been on ice for the last 70 years until, until recently, right? So uh, it's, it's, it's got that. 
What I also think is important about calling it part of the fascist tradition instead of these other concepts is to recognize that it has appeal, right? And it is aimed at having appeal. It's an emotional appeal, um, right? It's, uh, it's, it's, it's a revolutionary, a radical project, right? It's not just we don't like the elites and we represent the people. No, we want to transform something. We have a vision, right? Fascism very much had a vision. Uh, it's not just a little improvement of a situation. It's a dramatic transformation. It's again this um, adoration of emotional appeals and, uh, uh, and its consistent deployment of it. Um, in a lot of ways, of course, we know that this fascist tradition has arrived and the criticism one normally gets to anyone talking about that agenda is to say, well, look, you know, they haven't done X, Y, and Z, which is true, they haven't done X, Y, and Z. Some of these characteristics show they're beginning to do maybe, you know, QRVW, you know, mm -hmm. uh, uh, and, that's, uh, and that's the point, right? Because this, this fascism uh, is in many ways in its early stages, you know. We do wrong to think that, oh, this is its last hurrah, this is its, you know, it's coming to power and if they can't do it, then, you know, they'll be swept aside. You know, on the contrary, uh, uh, you know, there are gradations of fascism to be sure. This one is trying to dismantle democracy or liberal democracy, social democracy, and in trying to dismantle it, they're still constrained by those legacies they're trying to dismantle, right? And as these legacies are weakened at present, um, then it opens up the possibility, right, for later uh, 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 radical right people to say, you know, because as this project will not really succeed in doing what they want in benefiting everyone in the nation and preventing, you know, foreigners and, and others from intruding on that. So as that, as, that, as that concept fails, then it's entirely possible you know, that you get then uh, another right alternative um, uh, emerging, saying, of course, the problem is that you were too much following that liberal model, right? You didn't break decisively enough. You didn't do the uh, 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 more militant and military um, aspects of this. So, um, of course, it doesn't have to happen that way, but that's one of the things that can happen. And so in that sense, you know, this, this, uh, it's, I think, worthwhile and necessary to think about it in terms of fascist traditions. And I know some people say, don't deploy that word. It's the H-bomb word. If you use it, you can't say anything about anything else. You know, and I think, in a sense, un paradoxically, it's kind of necessary to normalize fascism uh, because it still does carry that negative uh, connotation, which I think is significant. And when actors are deploying everything in the rhetoric but themselves beating their chests and saying we have nothing in common with fascism, we're not fascists, even though every part of their program clearly does, then I think it is necessary to call them out uh, and to recognize also that, hey, this is an early stage of this, this is where it's headed, and this is what this ideology is. Now, what are the sources of its support, right? That's also the title of my talk, right? The sources of this right-wing power. Now, I'll concentrate more on um, in Poland and try to make some broader, broader points as well. And the first point is actually a broader, a broader point. I mean, the the the, uh, and this is widely known. You know, everyone's been talking about this lately, naming namely that the uh, source of support is what we might just say a. You know, a crisis or a, a, of neoliberalism, right? The fact that 
the fact that um, old models that um, uh, had some appeal for a long time for new upwardly mobile classes and that has helped certain groups in the last 30, 40 years uh, also left out so many others. And um, this in a context where uh, the moderate left tended to go along, the social democratic left, and of course the Democratic Party in the U.S. went along with these transformations, trying to salvage aspects of the social democratic past, but going along with it. And so um, uh, now we're witnesses to this real attack on that kind of um, program. Of course, as we know, you know, the silver lining in the uh, Trump victory was that, um, uh, was that his appeal was precisely one against neoliberalism. And as we saw, saw what was equally shocking about Trump was uh, Bernie Sanders coming from nowhere, right? And clearly what, thinking himself as just being a, you know, a nuisance to push Hillary a little to the left ends up thinking like if I started earlier, I might well have been able to win the nomination. You know, so, um, so, so, so things have been happening there. Now, in Poland, it was particularly significant, right? And much of this started earlier because in 1989, 1989, of course, is the moment of the great trans, you know, the fall of communism, as we say. Before the Berlin Wall, it happened in Poland six months earlier. Um, and, um, but what happened there, right? This was a, this was a, a, a fall, a collapse, an end to the old system and simultaneously a move towards, uh, in, towards in installing a very raw kind of capitalism. 1989 was in so many ways this high point of this neoliberal moment. Um, uh, Reagan and Thatcher and that, you know, that kind of transformation began in the early part of the decade. Interestingly, solidarity when it emerged in 1980 came in a very different international environment and had a lot had a, had a leftist program and saw itself very much connected with the left in 1989. That uh, these were still connected with democratization politically, but economically uh, they 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 moved to this alliance with uh, with neoliberalism. And again, in these communist societies, uh, state socialist societies, there was a dramatic move. Um, against that. And um, as the consequences of this radical neoliberalism or shock therapy, as these consequences became clear in the um, 90s, early 90s, that's what started creating all these political tendencies. That's what led to openings, to opportunities to the far right. Why were there opportunities to the far right? because both the solidarity people, both the liberals and the official left, uh, completely signed on to the market reforms, right? And um, signed on in a way that because um, much of that group, like the solidarity people, some of you here probably know the names, you know, Adam Michnik and Kuron, and of course, you know, Valencia too, these heroes of the solidarity movement, uh, who moved in this other direction, they did have support of a lot of workers. So in 1989, 1990, 1991, bad things are happening. You know, this neoliberal transformation is going apace, has bad social consequences. Most workers went along with them at that time. I started doing a lot of ethnographic research in the early 90s, and you saw still, you know, this support for um, this kind of transformation. 
Um, but at the same time, there were questions like maybe you shouldn't do this or go slow, do it differently. And the response of the liberal left was to say, look, we have your interests at heart. We know what you're doing. If you object, you're, you know, you're, just, you're just wrong, right? I mean, you're being irrational. And this was a very deadly and self-suicidal self kind of commentary that's long lingered. It does have traditions in East European intelligentsia, uh, far from this particular moment, you know, of a Russian cl classic notion of intelligentsia as always, you know, being uh, uh, dominant over others. But in, to deploy this at times of uh, electoral democracy, of course, is suicidal because you need votes of people. And there they're saying, we know what's in your interest, you don't. So as these consequences became, became clear, no one is doing anything about it. All of these certain problems come up, these junk contracts. Um, uh, 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 see if it pops up, but whatever. You know, these uh, junk contracts that were seemingly you couldn't do anything about it. Um, and um, uh, the low wages, the fact that uh, foreign companies are controlling so much of our economy. During the 90s into the O's, uh, what the liberal and the left, I say left because the former Communist Party, as the Social Democratic Party, won elections twice in 1993 and in 2001. And both times there was no difference from uh, uh, policies of the liberals. In other words, in Poland and Hungary in particular, the ex-communists were rushing all over themselves to prove that that they too were as um, market-oriented and neoliberal as the others. So all of these things couldn't be changed. Kaczynski, the leader of peace, started calling this, you know, with a very brilliant political st strategist, you know, he called this impossibilism, impossibilism. Uh, you know, he's denouncing this notion of impossibilism, you know, where liberals are saying, well, we can't do this, it's going to have this negative effect, we can't change these contracts, then the jobs will collapse, right? We can't uh, uh, put these taxes in place, then capital will escape, right? We can't do this, we can't do that, we're sorry about it, we don't like it, but again, it's not possible. And, you know, this critique of impossibilism is actually quite similar to um, going back to the early, the classic fascist period, because you go to the 1920s and 1930s, uh, at the time of the great economic crisis, the political uh, situation discussions were also around this idea of impossibilism, namely that there was the Great Depression, and earlier in Germany, the Great Inflation, right? And so there were these severe economic consequences. What could be done about it? Well, the political tendencies of the time said not much, right? The liberals said, we're sorry, this is the way the market works, you know, charity maybe, we wish we could help you, you know, I, I, we don't know what to do, but you know, we can't. Um, the official communist parties in West, I'm sorry, socialist parties, big difference, because the, but they were the most prominent ones in Western Europe, the social democratic parties, right, also took this crisis that was occurring, and they say, you see, Crisis is occurring just like we've always shown. We show that capitalism leads into crisis. Uh, you know, you should join our party. People say, well, what can you do about it? Comrades, don't worry. Socialism is coming. We will be able to do something about it. You know, and people are like, hey, is anyone going to do anything? Right? Um, 
and with so in other words there was a similar kind of impossibilism which is precisely the fascists who said hey we can do something about it we can take power in the state and we can actually use those institutions in a more aggressive way to provide some benefits to our people again to our nation um, right so um, you know uh, uh, right the fascists said they can conquer uh, uh, illib uh, um, impossibilism, and they did, right? Just like Kaczynski also said, we can, we can challenge this. And in many cases, he has, right? That's also this support that peace has there. You know, it's different than in the United States, right? Uh, uh, Trump, as we know, had that populist agenda, and of course, he has the most pro-corporate administration in history, you know, so, so he's not realizing those principles in Poland, and particularly Poland even more than Hungary, it's much more, um, much more effective, serious, and potentially uh, a, a successful, successful project, um, right? So we can do all these things. We can show that, you know, we can push the agenda. We can, we can uh, uh, crack down on neoliberal capitalism. It's not true that nothing could be done. TINA, that famous acronym, right? There is no alternative. We disagree. Right? And those who say it is are not just supporting capitalism, right? but are supporting you know, Poland staying in a colonial and neo-colonial aspect. So there's also, you know, they deploy a number of uh, classic Marxist rhetorics. In fact, in both Poland and Hungary, in these dominant right-wing parties, there's not a few, more than a few, pretty significant ideologues who had their roots in Marxism, right? who were radical Marxists, uh, who've also seen that you know peace is doing something along the lines of what we're doing. Again, similar to the way that prominent social democrats, you know, Daman famously and others joined with the fascists in the 1930s. That at least someone's doing something, even if we we don't like other aspects of what they're doing, right? So um, yeah, it gets that gets that kind of success. Now, what about a social base of support? Um, that there are, say, three or four constituencies here for this project. First, um, workers, particularly industrial workers, blue-collar workers, a little different, a little different with public sector workers, hospital workers, and um, teachers who are still in the public sector uh, and of a different constituency. They're not so lined up, but the strong working-class base of support comes from comes from factories, comes from blue-collar workers, again, for whom real benefits have been um, brought about. And again, their experience over these years is having been pushed away by liberals and by the official left, right? So uh, under this theme of impossibilism, we sympathize with you, but we can't do anything about it. So, you know, the right promised that, and it has been, excuse me, delivering on some of that. Um, and, uh, you know, as I say, it's, it's, so, it's so suicidal kind of strategy in a popular democracy because, you know, for a long time they basically just said, yeah, we, we the liberals, you know, we are in your, and I say liberals because they dominated 1989, right? They were the, they, they, they had everything kind of in their hands and, um, and had government in their hands as well, right? And then they say, you know, uh, again, we know what's best for you, you don't, and, um, uh, right, ignored them. They didn't try to deploy them at all. 
I mean, that's a fault. Even the Democratic Party today understands that it's a central aspect of its base is its blue-collar working class, right? It trotted out in recent elections from time to time, you know, to say, so we're going to work for you. Of course, as we know, you know, they haven't been able to do it, partly because they balked, partly because the Republican Party wouldn't go along, and, you know, you don't have a single, a single chamber. Uh, you don't have any veto points, in, um, in uh, uh, Poland, meaning uh, uh, agencies that can check what the government is doing, you did have the constitutional court, but they got rid of that right away, you know, whereas in the United States there's always been those, those points. So again, the liberals just totally squandered that. So, you know, that is now a significant base of support for peace. The old solidarity movement is pretty much, as a union, is uh, uh, very much in uh, pieces um, on, on, on on peace's side. So there's that constituency. There's the traditionalist constituency, the religious constituency, strong in uh, uh, rural areas, but not only, you know, and that's the one that, that of course, uh, thinks that those are the political questions that are fundamental because a big aspect of this, and I haven't dwelled on that so much and I'll probably underplay it here, you know, is this uh, a traditionalist uh, and a church aspect of this. In other words, you know, when you compare it like to other fascisms, this is probably in some ways, in this way, kind of similar to Franco and to Salazar in this strong pro-Catholic agenda. Of course, you know, for, uh, neither Italy nor Germany had the strong uh, uh, church presence, whereas in Southern Europe you had, and here, right, the most fundamentalist, the most extremist aspects of the Catholic Church have gotten direct subsidies and, um, uh, you know, this enamors traditionalists. Then you get um, nationalists of different sorts, right? And those who are saying, again, the nation and the strong state. Now, um, nationalists, those in calling for a strong state, right, include a lot of those who um, simply felt that nothing has been done on this issue in the past. And this is also pretty significant to think about it this way. We always say 1989, this was the moment of, you know, the old system collapsed, and now these countries are free to do what they want. Well, not quite, not exactly, because in international policy, 1989 comes about, and the Soviet Union and the Warsaw Bloc collapses, but they know what they need to do. Their central agenda is to join the two international organizations that are central, the European Union and NATO. And we've got to suck it up and do whatever they say, right? And for the next 15 years, they get into NATO in 1999, into the EU in 2004. For the next decade, right until they were about to get into NATO, there was all, always this, you know, West Europe treated East Europe pretty bad. Um, terms of trade were very much against it. Your East Europe had to open up its markets to Western goods, which meant that Eastern industry collapsed right away. And this is what strong state nationalists would say is a problem with liberalism. Even if we, you know, like democracy, look, you followed these neoliberal rules. You let Europeans, West Europeans, come take over our markets. Our industries couldn't compete right away. There was no support for infant industry, that classic term of, you know, supporting that. Rather, it was a policy of, for the most part, not in all industries, um, uh, uh, you know, selling away the country's economic jewels and uh, right, so nationalists are very much part of this. Again, those who want to assert Polishness as an abstractness, 
and I come across that a lot, and I must say there, you know, I always try to find out what's behind it until I have to realize, oh, there's nothing, you know, that is what it is, right? It's, it's that mystical notion of Polishness that, you know, conforms to history and that we are that and that we must maintain. And of course, for those, any kind of, you know, too close alliances with the West and with even Western capitalism will strip us of our essential Polishness. That's a term very much in vogue, uh, you know, Polishness. And again, it can't be defined, it can be felt, and it must be felt and inhabited. Um, so there's that aspect of the nationalism. Again, there's also those who just focus on strong state. The state has been marginalized. So, you know, that nationalist strong state base has always been um, a, a key constituency. Um, to say another constituency, and of course we know there's been a lot of discussion of this in America as well, you know, is probably, you know, a gender component by which I mean, you know, that constituency of frustrated toxic masculinity. I mean, in Poland, like elsewhere, as they move towards the new economic system after 1989, uh, and not so much based just on blue-collar labor, it did provide new opportunities for service work and new opportunities for um, women in industries outside of the blue-collar industries. After 89 to, you know, the liberals, why, you know, I called them liberals and then spent the last 20 minutes, you know, kind of denouncing them economically, but uh, they were consistent liberals politically, right? And so very supportive of the move towards equality, you know, pushing agendas, empowering women, right? Supporting uh, feminism, talking pro uh, uh, supportively about immigrants, about minority rights, right? I mean, they were, they were very consequential and took, you know, good, solid liberal positions on, on these grounds. And of course, as we know, you know, that, that, that leads everywhere to, to those who have previously felt, you know, masculine, <laughs> entitled by gender uh, to feel uh, rejected by gender. And of course, you know, we see those um, prominent uh, um, anti-gender policies being 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 so strong there as well. Um, so all of this provided this big opportunity for the right, uh, which uh, the peace government first came to power in 2005, um, did not have a majority in parliament and actually passed some bills which were, in fact, um, struck down by the Constitutional Court. That's why when they returned to power 10 years later, the first thing they did is made sure the Constitutional Court can't do that anymore. Um, but this right, interestingly right, had been as pro-market in 1989 as anyone else. I mean, you know, go back to that period, right, and go back to, uh, you know, in, the, in the, the aura of state socialist times, uh, you know, the enemy of the enemy is our friend. Um, you know, I've, of course, been studying this region a long time, as anyone else who studied that region used to hear. You have to be older now to have heard that, but it went on forever. Anyone going to Eastern Europe used to always hear during the Cold War, oh, you know, you can't understand what's really going here. You're just naive Westerner. You don't really understand what this system is really like, you know, this oppressiveness that occurs in various ways, you know, and they were largely true for a lot of people you know, who did say, oh, there's no repression in the Soviet Union and didn't see 
other things, you know. So that was true. But the same thing is just so remarkably true, alas, of, you know, 1989. So my point is, you know, in 1989, those on the political right, on the left, everybody was enamored with the market. Even the workers were, who were going to get screwed by them were uh, enamored by the market. One of my first articles at that time was called, titled Unionists Against Unions, because it was precisely based on a whole study in the early 1990s and interviews with all these people and all these unionists saying, you know, we don't really need trade unions so much. It's a shame. Uh, good owners are going to take care of their workers, and so we need to privatize. And I'm like, oh boy, you know, what you're kind of going to get used to, which of course then they did get used to. So the right wasn't completely against, well, was as pro-market as anyone else, but as they saw that budding anger, that emerging anger, which by the mid-90s, late-90s, on all these spheres, right, internationally, domestically, nationwide, economically, culturally, you know, they feel that we're, we're lost, right, we're detached, we're trying to follow something else. This was a huge opportunity, right, for them to um, emerge and kind of change their strategy a bit. Now, Kaczynski was always on this side, a brief segue to, to Hungary, which, of course, you saw the election, and some of you probably read some of the comments in recent days. The, the, you know, the head of Hungary, Orban, he was very much a liberal himself and seems to have made you know, a clear opportunistic leap to occupy a different political side in order to succeed electorally. Right? Uh, Kaczynski, and um, you know, in Poland, with a, a stronger tradition, a stronger nationalist tradition, the ideological element has been more powerful there. So, you know, there was this move to take advantage of that. Probably the first to take advantage, and this was very kind of unusual and disquieting, I remember, you know, to me in the 90s, as I'm still doing a lot of ethnographic research in, in, in Poland throughout the 90s into the early O's, and by the late 90s, uh, you started seeing that, you know, the only ones who were consistently supporting um, uh, workers and strikes, almost any kind of strike taking place, were the fundamentalist Catholics, anti-Semitic, extreme right wing. Why? Well, you know, their point always, like I say, oh, well, you should defend workers. They say we're not defending workers, we're defending Poles, right? We're defending Catholics. We're defending people who are being pushed aside by this liberal and increasingly godless government, right? Um, you know, so uh, uh, they made a lot of moves in that direction. Peace as well, right, started doing the kinds of work um, going out into these places. Again, where I was doing ethnographic research in small dying industrial towns, I almost never saw liberals or left candidates come, but I frequently saw come to this meeting of this right-wing speaker or this right-wing speaker, you know, they came and they um, did their job. Uh, right, so, um, you know, they were able to they were able to benefit a lot from that. They're getting traction in this time. They're winning over more support. Um, you know, in a sense, what they're profiting from is what one can see as a maxim, a theorem, I'd propose, that is, seems clearly true in the United States as well. Um, put it this way, um, too much economic liberalism threatens political liberalism. And of course, I'm using economic liberalism in the classic European sense, not in the recent American sense, but li economic liberalism, no control, let, bus let, let business do what it wants, right? That kind of uh, you know, movement that Polanyi always says needs to be 
tr countered by a counter movement. Um, but so too much economic liberalism threatens political liberalism because the too much economic liberalism creates too much sense of, uh, of people losing out uh, and then someone has got to win them over. And traditionally, historically, it was the left. But as the left made changes, did become more focused around cultural issues, uh, less on economic issues, partly because it didn't and still doesn't know exactly how to crack the nut of globalization. How do you have a kind of controlled economy like work from 45 to 75 in an open global economy? No one still knows the answer. That's why you know, it's not like the left doesn't have a good, you know, it isn't coming up with the right slogan. It's, it still doesn't know exactly how to do that. But um, too much economic liberalism uh, you know, threatens political liberalism here because then the right has been able to use successfully to say, get rid of these politically liberal elements. We'll defend you because we're on that behalf of solidarity now with a small s, and it doesn't mean everyone. I mean, it's that classic fascist solidarity, right? Fascist is communitarian. I call it you know, inegalitarian communitarianism. You know, is based around a community of a, a, a small s solidarity, meaning it's for us, it's for our groups. As we know, you know, if you were a German Aryan worker, you benefited a hell of a lot from fascism, you know, before the war anyway, you know, and you were a supporter of it. I mean, it, it, it worked for you. Yes, they confiscated, you know, wealth and lives of Jews and others, but, you know, hey, there was a insurement and, and protection for us, for our for our group, you know? So um, the, the right has, that's the appeal of this, that it does speak to it, and to the extent that it is a left fascism uh, and is part of that tradition, then it has more, more sustainability. Um, so it's, uh, you know, can put itself forth as pro-worker, pro-nationalist, pro-masculinist, um, and, uh, you know, so, so yeah, this is, a, this is a, a key aspect. A couple of other things I'll try to finish up in five, five minutes. Um, sources of its durability, right? Why is it durable? Uh, in Poland, I think it is. I think it's more durable than elsewhere for a while. Um, first of all, uh, international support. Now, it's a little tenuous with the European Union politically. Uh, European Union can throw them out, or it has to have unanimity to throw them out. Uh, Hungary says it will block it. They don't want to do it. They have, in the last few months, for the first time in the EU's history, invoked article, forgot the number, one of these articles that says, you know, we can punish you and potentially exclude you. It's going to take a long time. They probably won't do it, you know, but they're, they're pushing back a little bit. Uh, so there's some pushback, but not that much. It's not much of a threat. The bigger basis of international support comes from business, right? Continued international business. Because here, you know, um, East Europe is still a good market for them, right? Uh, they would feel a little in trouble investing in a place that was openly dictatorial, openly, you know, more further down the line of, uh, of violent fascism. But if it's cracking down on this, that, and the other thing, right, but still providing good avenues for business investment, then we have nothing against it, right? Soon after Kaczynski came to power a couple of months afterwards, it was a, you know, several hundred million dollar investment by Daimler uh, in uh, uh, Western Poland that's still 
that's still going strong. So that's a strong base of support from foreign business. Also domestic business, because there has been push. We'll still keep foreign capital, but we try to outsource more to domestic capital. Right? So um, uh, uh, we're, we're, we're allowing business to, to do more. We want more contracts to go, to go that way, so some of the national capitalists go along. Um, another aspect, like you say, well, how can it be durable when they promote this kind of racism and intolerance. Well, here, alas, Poland after World War II, for the most you know, catastrophic and horrific uh, reasons possible, became a very uh, monocultural state, right? Monoethnic state. Um, and so, ironically, or maybe not ironically, actually not ironic, it just follows. They can put forth all of this, all of this kind of extremist hatred rhetoric and don't really have to pay such a cost in terms of internal consequences, right? They don't have the migrants there. They don't have the Muslim population. We saw that Marina Le Pen, when she thought she was close to winning, uh, moved away from this anti-Muslimism. No, I'm not going to force them all out. I'm not going to do all that. We have to live with them. We understand. You know, in Poland, they don't have to detract from that kind of rhetoric because it's not, they're, they're not going to pay the same kind of social internal costs and disability and in, in, in dis, in insecurity. You know, they may get condemned by much of the world, which has in fact happened, but hey, you know, we're here in power for ourselves. Um, you know, so, uh, so it's got possibility to, to last. Finally, what are the conditions working against it, right? Why, why might it not last? What are the conditions that can, can undermine it? First of all, and this is somewhat paradoxically, one of the things that probably could undermine it would be success by right-wing nationalism uh, in Western Europe. Because if you really had Le Pen in power, if you had a successful right-wing uh, in power, which theoretically Poland and Hungary are rooting them on, but if you had that in power, there would be more pressure against their domestic capital to move out of Eastern Europe. Why are you allowing that? Why are we allowing Polish workers to come and work here? That, of course, was a big aspect of Brexit, right? To the extent that they succeed, then East Europe actually loses that kind of free economic bonuses that come from uh, it being in, 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 in West European business interest to, um, uh, to continue it. Um, a second source of potential uh, 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 problems and undermining of this if, uh, uh, well, continued problems in the EU, to what extent the European Union um, breaks up. Of course, the bigger alternative and possibility if uh, the left is able to offer an alternative, right? Uh, can it? The big question, can it? Now, in Poland, you do have a small uh, new left party, like a new type of economically left party called Together, Razem, which has been uh, got some significant clout, significant success. Um, well, it got 4% coming from nothing. That was significant a few years ago. Um, they still have a hard time. They might be able to emerge more in the future, but it's a very young party. It doesn't have the same connections. Uh, and, you know, they're trying. But uh, again, because peace also is offering those economic benefits, it's often a bit hard to tackle that. Can a left offer an alternative that's not nationalist? 
That's a big question. Some of you may know the work of Wolfgang Streich, who of course was in Madison, taught in Madison some time ago, you know, and lately he's, he's been talking about, you know, that the left needs to be more nationalist and uh, have its own perhaps restrictive policies around immigration issues and, uh, you know, has been condemned by other aspects of the left, but of course that's a big that's a big um, issue. You know, as we know, classic social democracy occurred at the time when the third world was under control of imperialism and when minorities and dominant countries were subjected to everyday forms of everyday official racism. Uh, after the 60s and 70s, of course, you know, the West gave up and abandoned those official racisms. The third world is no longer easily exploitable for its raw materials, and it does pre present a real problem. Again, that's why I say the problem is not just that the left isn't saying we want an economic change too, but it also doesn't yet have you know, a, a, a model of how it can um, succeed. Uh, one other aspect, you know, in, can this model succeed in terms of internal problems? Because in Poland, the model is, the project is much more ideological than in Hungary, it has a lot of different competing bases. Again, those who call for a strong state, those who call for nationalism in terms of more Polishness, right? Those who want to crack down on, on you know, neo-colonialism, those who want to push a Christian agenda. Uh, you have all these different factions there, and especially even just now in the last months has been a big topic in Poland, they seem to be fighting each other. The Holocaust speech law that they passed last month, most of them think this is a disaster, you know, what are we supposed to gain from it? We're not going to gain from it, we're going to try to move away from it in somehow, but then we'll be, you know, doing what we always said we wouldn't do, we'll be retreating, others are attacking them for that, that ups the kind of anti-Semitic rhetoric uh, uh, of the last year uh, on some part of the right, other parts of the right saying, hey, we can't be anti-Semitic, we love Israel, we know that trope for a while, you know, they've been quite friends with a, you know, a kind of right-wing Israel for a while, but, you know, there, there, there are those kinds of tensions as well. Of course, for those tensions to succeed, you need a plausible opposition that's going to say, we're not just going to return to what happened in 2014 before peace came to power, but you know, we have to have that model again. Again, that's still gonna take some time, which is why I, you know, although I don't think that their particular kind of nationalist project can succeed in the long run, I do think it can succeed for the next several years, right? And, and, and change people culturally and change the next generation as well culturally, but you know, um, probably internationally and nationally, it will deconstruct or de destruct itself, self-destruct, you know, and uh, that's where, again, alternatives need to be present, and that's why, you know, this even thinking and believing that there's this long period, or a period of some years where it's gonna last, you know, the, the struggle to think of alternatives is all the more necessary today. Thank you.